the England team's desire to take the knee as performative, it became this symbol that triggered so many people. And it's good that they were triggered. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Pete Ogushaga and this is 80% Mental, one of the greatest podcasts to ever live. Welcome to another episode and I think this is the first special episode of the series, uh, I think. I've actually really wanted to do this for a while and by this I mean exploring the links between sport and social justice. But recent events actually have sort of spurred me into action, I suppose. It's mid-March 2023 and Gary Lineker of Leicester, Everton, Barcelona, Tottenham, Grampus 8 and Walker's Crisps fame criticised the government's illegal immigration bill. Specifically, he responded to a video message from Home Secretary Suella Braverman about stopping people from crossing the channel in small boats. Lineker tweeted that the policy was beyond awful and called the government's policy an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. Now, before we go on with the podcast, I'm perfectly happy to stand up and say that Gary Lineker was absolutely 100% correct. From an objective standpoint, those comparisons stand up. The language used by Suella Braverman, not for the first time, was entirely similar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. So the question that we have to ask is why all the fuss? MPs were quick to condemn Gary Lineker. The BBC announced that he would step back from presenting Match of the Day and that it considered his recent social media activity to be a breach of their guidelines. And virtually everybody voiced their opinion on whether Gary Lineker should be able to voice his opinion. One of the criticisms, one of the very predictable criticisms, was that Lineker should stick to sport. It's a criticism that's often thrown at sports people who dare to speak out on issues that reach beyond the sporting arena. I find it quite an odd criticism, given the rich history of sport being an immensely powerful vehicle for social change. And I hope we'll get into some of that a little bit later on. So while the King of Crisps might well be the spark on this occasion, there's a much broader conversation to be had about the role of sports people in social justice. And I don't really want to have that conversation on my own. So as usual, uh, I've enlisted a bit of a panel here of some truly wonderful people to talk with me. So first of all, I am really, really pleased to welcome Amna Abdulatif and Shaista Aziz, two-thirds of the award-winning Three Hijabis, who launched a petition in the wake of the Euro finals to ban racists from football. So Amna and Shaista, welcome, uh, really, really warm welcome to the 80% Mental Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Great subject matter as well. Uh, thank you. You're more than welcome. I, um, I, I wonder if you could just Tell me a little bit about how the three hijabis came about. What's the story behind that? Yeah, so the three hijabis came about because we are three British Muslim women who happen to wear the hijab, which is a headscarf. We love football. Who knew? Who knew Muslim <laughs> women love football, right? Dun, dun, dun. Um, so we got together um, after the lockdown was lifted and we went to watch the England versus Ukraine match in the men's Euros um, that England was hosting, as we know. And it was the first time we'd seen each other since the lockdown. We had a fabulous time. 
um, we went to a bar, logically, and uh, we watched the game. And I put a tweet out, a photo of the three of us, saying the three hijabis walked into a bar to watch the three lions thrashing Ukraine. And then the rest of the tweet was about identity and race and belonging and yearning to belong Mm -hmm. in an England that is becoming increasingly hostile and aggressive to all minorities and people of colour, as we know. And, you know, the complexities of supporting an England team that have not consistently been known for their anti-racist values. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people who look like us, the collective us here, um, often we don't feel safe going to football matches. We're not safe on the way to a football game, on the way back and in the stadium. And this has been the case, shamefully, for a long time. So that's how the three hijabis came to life. But I'm going to hand over to Amna so you can spill more beans, Amna. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was the starting point. And and after that tweet went viral, it essentially gave us a platform to comment (laughs) about football uh, during the Euros. And, uh, and we did, we, you know, we were a lot on on media and so forth. And then obviously, at the final game, um, we, um, uh, we lost, obviously, the uh, Euro final. Um, uh, We were together, uh, watching the game in Wembley, although at Hooders House at Wembley, uh, not the stadium itself. And, uh, we, um, you know, we were devastated, not because of losing, because I don't think anyone even thought the England team would get that far in the first place. <laughs> so we were very proud of the team for actually getting that far. Um, mm. But devastated for um, for the players, for those three England players who missed those penalties, um, for the many, you know, children like Hooders who were s- upset by the fact that going to school might be difficult the next day. And we knew that it would be, um, you know, that people of colour, particularly, you know, across the country, um, would bear the brunt of that loss um, and and we'd see an increase um, in, in, in the racism against those players. Um, and so the next morning, that's when we decided to put out that petition that's kind of went or everywhere it was insane about 48 hours we were had a million signatures um calling for the banning banning of racists from football uh which was a bold statement and uh for <laughs> for a reason for a reason not that we were ever expecting that you know all racists were suddenly going to get banned um but it seemed to you know it seemed to collectively bring people together um on a positive message um that actually this is not okay um that we can't be in a country where you know players um black players can be abused and harmed in this way um and so it was kind of a collective calling i think and for many people i think they just wanted something easy that's hopeful that they can connect with that they can share that they can say they've done you know their bit um and it did it helped you know it helped us have a a much bigger platform um uh to be able to share that message um and that collective 1.2 almost 1.3 million people um during those first few weeks after that uh euro final game um was huge you know meetings with the fa the government boris stood up in parliament and talked about extending the banning orders um, you know, the, the conversation was ongoing and it didn't seem to stop. I mean, months after and still now we get invited to talk about that petition from back then um, because there's a, a sense of excitement and hope and, you know, a collective way to change, you know, society in, in, in a way. Um, so that's how it's kind of, yeah, 
how and, it's and we evolved. Made it really we made it clear that we were reclaiming the narrative back from the racists. We made it clear that this is our England team. It, the England team doesn't belong to racists. It belongs to England fans. Mm-hmm. And we made it very clear that this team has put anti-racism front and centre. When they took the knee, they were totally vilified for it by the then Home Secretary of the Day, Priti Patel, yeah. who really got it in, got, got you know, Tyrone Mings really went for her on Twitter. Um, and, you know, these politicians were making them out to be some sort of Marxist, you know, scumbags who are basically the fifth <laughs> column who are going to, you know, create havoc in the country. It's just thoroughly horrifying and very embarrassing. But we're proud of the fact that we helped, you know, shift that conversation. Yeah, and I, I, I probably want to talk about that a little bit later on as well, actually, to be honest. But I remember watching that match. I remember watching the final and, and, and like many, many other people of colour, and I've spoken about this before, watching those three players warming up on the sidelines, knowing that they were about to come on and take penalties, like my heart was already sinking Yeah, at the yeah. thought of, you know, the prospect of what was possibly going yeah, to happen. They're so, so young like, as well. Yeah, they're so, so young, teenagers. You yeah. know, these are like the same age as my yeah. nephew. My my daughters are the same age as these young players, and it was like it just it was hor- you know horrendous to see them put in a, in that you know it, the the pressure alone you know that that we expected, and you know the only way players learn and develop is by taking those chances, and we know that every game is a risk anyway. Uh, but the impact of what happens after a game is just you know there's no no young person no no adult should really have to experience that level of um, you know rhetoric and violence um, online or elsewhere but i think it's wonderful that you've taken that that episode and have turned that into something more positive and more more hopeful like you said so hopefully we can talk about that uh, as the the episode goes on um we're not alone now um we, we we have another guest with us who i want to bring in and i'm again really really pleased to uh bring in a friend and colleague uh john fernandez uh, from uh, well, John, why don't you tell us where you're from? Uh, you're a lecturer and a researcher yeah. in exercise physiology, uh, strength and conditioning. Yeah, so lecturer and researcher um, in exercise physiology and strength and conditioning at Cardiff Met. Um, I also sit on the bases uh, British Association for Sport and Exercise Sciences uh, EDI advisory group, and have kind of been heavily involved in EDI work for like I don't know five six years now. Well, I always say that and it feels like I've been formally involved, but I feel like my 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 whole life is is just is just this work, to be honest. Yeah. As soon as I became conscious or or I had the, the talk as it were. Uh, you know. Yeah, so formally yeah. five, six years and then whole life involved in this kind of work. Yeah. So yeah, obviously you and I have, have collaborated on a couple of couple of projects already. Um, but I just wonder if, if you could tell us a little bit about that work. So you said you, you're heavily involved in bases on their EDI committee. Uh, what kind of thing does that uh, what kind of things does that involve? Yeah, so um, I guess like one of the initial things we did was to just kind of landscape the way uh, bases looks. Uh, for want of a better phrase, in terms of the current kind of like diversity, so that we can kind of monitor. Um, where we're at and then look at the effectiveness of some of our initiatives so we've kind of done a variety of different things we've you know developed a role models initiative um it's gonna come out i don't know if i can say it's publicly but it's, it's gonna come out uh, <laughs> that we've got a uh, a like professional development and mentorship scheme uh, which is looking to like recruit and retain uh kind of people from underrepresented groups into sport and exercise and kind of equipping them with the skill set uh we're looking at kind of like some of our bases accreditation routes and looking at where we can kind of like 
embed EDI and anti-discriminatory practices into there as well. So there's plenty of stuff going on. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And uh, really looking forward to getting your insights uh, throughout the throughout the podcast. I'm really, again, pleased to have all three of you uh, here joining me today. Um, I, I'd love to hear what you think about all of this as well, dear listener. Uh, so if you have thoughts and comments about this episode, uh, then you can tweet us at EPM Podcast. You can leave a comment on the website, 80percentmental.com, or you can find us on Instagram at 80percentmental, which is all words. So we'd love to hear your uh, views on, on what you're about to hear. Okay, so I, I, I want to be careful a little bit that we're not diluting the message here um, and we're not turning the focus onto whether Gary Lineker should be allowed to voice his opinion or not. Um, we have to really remember and give a little bit of space to the actual message and think about what he was what he was really trying to say. I think that's important. But my, my opening question, and, and I guess anybody can jump in here, is like, what do you make of all of this? You know, the, the furore surrounding Gary Lineker daring to speak out about a really important social justice issue. Well, I think it's thoroughly shameful that in 2023 we have a government that thinks it's okay to contravene international law, to contravene the Geneva Convention, the rights to asylum, um, at a time when record numbers of people are being displaced around the world because of man-made conflict and man-made climate change. Um, and we know that the vast majority of those people being impacted by these things are people of colour. So I also think it's really shameful that we've got a hierarchy of racism uh, around refugees and asylum seekers. So when people in Ukraine are being bombed, they are being invited to the UK and elsewhere, as they should. And they are being given the right to settle here as they should, and the right to work as they should, and the right to find housing as they should. So really, what we're seeing is this categorization of who is worthy of our compassion and uh, who is worthy of protection of international law and who isn't. And I think the Gary Lineker debacle, if you want to call it that, is basically a distraction for this government. So Gary, I have a lot of time and respect for Gary Lineker, even before he did said what he said. Gary Lineker can take care of himself. He's very capable. He's a rich man a white straight man with a lot of agency and a lot of power and even then look what happened to him look at how he's been vilified look at the attacks that he's had to sustain and i'm sure it's had an impact on his mental health and well-being and his family's mental health and well-being if he was black this level of protection would not have been offered to him and i think we need to look at that um but i salute him he's brave for speaking the truth. And it's not Gary Lineker who's politicised the um, horrifying, dehumanising politics of Suella Braverman and this government. They did that. He didn't do it. They did. And the BBC, frankly, should have known better. Yeah, uh, I really echo all of that. Um, I think it really shows how much kind of like control the government want at the moment. And I think this because people are just really frustrated. The amount of strikes and protests that are going on at the moment just shows like the place where people are at. Like, um, and I guess they have been over the last uh, 13 years or so. Um, I think like 
it really raises a lot of questions uh, regarding if the BBC is impartial uh, and actually whether impartiality is even a good thing. Uh, I'd argue that when it comes to issues of social justice and what we think is morally right, impartiality is nonsense. You don't you don't want to be impartial. You want people to speak out. You want people like Gary Lineker have a lot of power. They have a lot of influence. They can change minds. Um, and I think, you know, he, he should be allowed to do that. Um, I mean, he's also, with what he said, I also agree with, with what he said as as far as you know my b in gcse history allows me to uh <laughs> so there, there's that but i think what it also shows is uh the amount of kind of like uh, the power of solidarity and the amount of people that actually support that at the same time uh because there was this kind of like wave of people coming through you know social media was obviously flooded with what i'd perceive as the negative voices and also the voices of people uh, who are there to support him. And I think it kind of like shows how much, if we group together, how much power we can have, how much influence we can have. Amna, what are your you thoughts on this? I mean, I agree with everything that's already been said, but I just I just see it as a really desperate attempt by the government to try and have some level of, uh, of you know, control and leverage at a time when they are losing so much credibility and so much support. Um, and, you know, the, ho- the old, old rhetoric around refugees and migrants is one that's played over and over and over again uh, when governments are stuck for who to blame for economic uh, situations. Um, and, and that's all we're seeing. I mean, the, the whole the illegal migration bill, whatever the hell it's called, is illegal in itself, as Shaista said, you know, so how they're going to even pass it is is going to be a big question mark. But I do think it is just distraction. I don't I don't see um, I don't see it actually coming into force. Um, uh, but I do think that the um, I just find it kind of, do you know what confuses me the most is that Gary Lineker's social media is very political anyway. Um, he talks a lot about political issues. Um, you know, when you go scroll through his um, his Twitter account, you can see all sorts of things. His commentary about the situation in Iran, um, you know, issues that are going on in this country. Um this isn't new. So why it's this particular issue that seems to have really got the backs up of the government and um, and the BBC um, is, I think, a big question uh, for us to kind of really think about um, in terms of what's gone on there. Um, and I think it is. I think it's just about desperation. I think it is about control. Um, it's very evident that this uh, this government is trying to limit um, uh, public uh, speech. Um, they want to limit criticism uh, of um, the their policies. Uh, we can see, you know, even kind of in the voter ID system that they've brought in, the limitations of people's rights to vote in this country are being infringed on. Um, all of this stuff is happening. And I, you know, I feel like we're, because so much of the economic crisis that this country is in at the moment is almost like we're we're not responding to the things that are being taken away. Um, you know, the right to protest, the right to be able to you know, to vote without having to bloody have a passport or a driving license or whatever, you know, relevant ID is needed nowadays uh, for this upcoming election. I just think that our rights are being slowly eroded and there's big question marks about, you know, human rights law um, and, and you know, what we're seeing with this particular bill. Um, and I, yeah, there's, there's just so much there that I think that's why it's possibly become so controversial when Gary Lineker said what he said and actually got support for it. 
And, and he was vilified for saying something he didn't say, just to be very clear. They put words in his mouth and they uh, twisted his words. And, you know, that's a very desperate thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I do think that he has really caught the imagination of a lot of people, people who didn't even know who Gary Lineker was, people who've got zero interest in football. You know, it's wonderful to see those Leicester City fans um, holding up those, uh, you know, posters saying refugees welcome. And I think the other thing to remember here is that football has consistently been doing incredible social justice work and overwhelmingly football fans are not portrayed in this way. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to dress up the hooliganism and the racism and the homophobia, of course not. The other side of it, that's the ugly side. The, uh, the beautiful side is never amplified. It's never shown. You know, um, I used to be on the FA's uh, Refugees and Asylum Seekers Network. And I can tell you that Burnley Football Club is doing some of the most progressive work in the entire country on these issues. It's not talked about. It's kind of almost hidden away. Um, and I think what Gary Lineker has done really is encourage. He's, he's sort of said to people, come on, stand up, stand up and be counted. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it, it, it's this sport has always been this this vehicle for social change. It really has. And there's, there's countless examples throughout history of sports people, you know, bringing conversations to the mainstream in exactly the way that you just described with with Gary Lineker. Um, I, you know, there's, there's often pushback from that as well as the support. It was lovely to see the support that he received from his colleagues, particularly Alan Shearer. Go, go Alan. Um but there's often pushback, you know. So, so what is it about sports people in general, or, or entertainers even in general, speaking on social justice issues that people don't really like? For me, this comes down to uh, like the power dynamics and the perception of the athletes or ex-athletes' place. So it's kind of really easy to think of um, athletes as people with really high levels of power. But we've got to remember that that the majority of them actually aren't. You have like certain athletes, ones who have, I don't know, like who have really, really excelled, uh, who have kind of um, like broadened their business scope, who have higher levels of power. But actually, a lot of the time it's very temporary um, and it kind of only exists while the spotlight's on them. So, you know, um, they also kind of sit within an organisation. There's this Chris Rock sketch. Uh, where he says uh, he's talking about the difference between wealth and and being rich and he's like Shaq is rich the white dude that signs uh, Shaq's check is wealthy and it kind of just illustrates the the power dynamics that are at play there uh, like you know Shaq isn't even as great as he was in, isn't even someone with the highest levels of power um, mm. and the kind of other thing to consider is that Athletes, ex-athletes are often just seen in terms of their bodies. They're often just seen as, seen as workers. Um, so, you know, I guess the kind of the best uh, example of that is where Laura Ingram said that LeBron James should just shut up and dribble. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, LeBron James has always been outspoken. Uh, he's always kind of been progressive about kind of issues in his area and for black athletes and, and so on. Um, and actually, you know, Athletes aren't seen as people who are like, or often aren't seen as people uh, with highly valuable experiences. People are intelligent, people whose mm. views matter, uh, who should we listen to, who actually we should action some of what they're saying. Uh, I'm not saying every athlete is like that, but typically the ones that are speak, speaking out are really progressive and hold really highly valuable views. Um, is, is, yeah. is, there, is there something there though about, you know, I just, 
I just want to watch match of the day. I, I don't want to have to think about war and genocide yeah. and you know cost of living crisis. I just want to be entertained by people running around. I don't want to have to think about all that nasty stuff. There is that, but that's a manufactured argument, isn't it? So I think a lot of it's to do with class as well, right? So you know, traditionally, sport, be it across the Atlantic, be it here, has been one of the only avenues for working class people to, you know, attain a lifestyle that they never could have done, right? And disproportionately, that applies to black people. So we know that in Ivy League universities across the US, indeed non-Ivy League universities, a lot of um, uh, black people, in particular people of colour, get scholarships based on their ability to play sport. If they didn't have that, they wouldn't be able to get an education. They wouldn't have been able to afford it. Um, if you look at Lewis Hamilton, this working class lad, he's still the only black racer, um, racing driver all these years on. Serena Williams, uh, Venus Williams, you know, straight out of Compton and all that nonsense attached to them. Tyrone <laughs> um, Mings, you know, spent time in um, living, you know, was homeless for a while. Raheem Sterling, you know, and it goes on, it goes Marcus Rashford. This whole... There's a, there's a political pushback against all of these athletes. It starts. It's been around for a long time, but it's definitely increased in the Trump years. Trump went to war with Kaepernick and various others, as we know. Um, and this government in the UK has been going to war with with the England team and with anybody dares to speak up. Note how they didn't go after Djokovic. They didn't. They didn't when he was talking about COVID vaccinations and whatever else he was doing. You know, there was a lot of um, support for him, as we know, in, in in Australia. But he didn't get the same response. I know he's not British, but he didn't get that same level of anger as someone like Lewis Hamilton does as Marcus Rashford does you know as Raheem Sterling does and this has gone on throughout history you know Muhammad Ali um Tommy Smith this this is it's basically stay in your lane that's what it is it's, and, and Gary Lineker got to stay in your lane that's what he was told he was told get in your lane and stay there so but I think Sorry, I was just going to say, I think this whole stay in your lane is whether you agree with the opinion or not. And I think because the people in power obviously didn't agree with the opinions that are being shared by some of these, um, you know, uh, sports personalities over history and over time, and particularly in this particular period, um, that's why they're trying to shut it down. Now, if these people were saying things like, you know, congratulating the government on these policies or telling them what a brilliant job they were doing, I highly doubt we would have had the same pushback or the same negative uh, kind of attacks that we've had against, you know, Gary Lineker and and some of the other players who have spoken at the taking of the knee and, and, and those kinds of displays. Um, I, I think it does have a lot to do with do we agree or do we not? You know, why we sit here and, and celebrate some of these is, yeah, because I agree with what these, uh, you know, footballers have been saying or doing and actioning because these are things, values and and issues that I believe in as well. Um, you know, so, I, yeah, I guess it's a lot to do with, you know, whether we agree and whether the people in power particularly see the merits of those particular issues that are being raised by those footballers. Completely agree. And I think what's interesting is that uh, people have come, become so disenfranchised with how society is that there's people who are fighting for things which will improve their lives as well and yeah. they don't even want to involve themselves in it. Like the the benefits of inclusivity, diversity, uh, like equality, equity, so on and so forth, like improve the lives for everyone. Like no one's, you know, no one's seat at the table gets taken away. It's about rebuilding the table, so on and so forth. Yet the pe- people would rather just sit there and just watch football than going, okay, cool, 
how can I take that and implement it, implement something like that into my daily life? What does that mean for me at work when I'm speaking out about these things or when I hear jokes, uh, like quotation marks around that, uh, like jokes being made, right? People would rather just go, I'm going to disengage. It's like, you know, they feel so alienated from what's happening that they just end up in that place. Yeah, I agree with you. But I also think that that's also um, what people in power want us to think they want us to feel hopeless they want us to feel that we can't do anything we are actually just here to consume their messaging and their policies Mm. you know um and i think um sport has always been a a barometer for change always 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 um you know and um amna your amna's mum is a massive liverpool fan so i need to get this in there right (laughs) one more scholar we always have to mention liverpool in any any communication. Well, I, I feel like I should just say that Newcastle are above Liverpool in the table for oh, the first, for the first you know time what? In, in what seems like about my, my 20 mom's years. Actually, my mum's actually from the northeast, and in my teens I used to support uh, Newcastle, but it's been disallowed in my family for anyone to support any other team other than Liverpool because of my mum. So. so the reason why I'm mentioning Liverpool, obviously, is to get Amna's mum in the podcast and uh, to get into the fighting. Um, but beyond that, it's because when Mo Salah was signed up, uh, signed to Liverpool, Islamophobia went down, down, down. Mm. Um, it took Mo Salah to show up and play magnificently, whether we support Liverpool or not. We know he's a fantastic player. And all the chanting about, you know, I'll go to the mosque if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. That is that is incredible, right? Um, and, you know, I think, I mean, obviously, I don't think that we should put it all on the shoulders of one Arab football player. Um, but the point being, you know, this, that symbolism and that ability to motivate fans and others to think about what they're doing and how they, what they're saying and how they're chanting, I think is really, really powerful. And the politicians of this country know that. Yeah, and agree. That effect, though, only exists while they're excellent right yeah, yeah as soon as That's like the... we saw it with the euros as soon as as soon as i mean it wasn't even a dip in form they they just missed the penalty right then that effect just goes right so you know how much of a are people just reducing their discriminatory beliefs because one of their players is from this group or um are there like entrenched beliefs changing are they, are they just not vocalizing those beliefs or are they, is it a true change? I yeah. totally agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. There's that whole, you've got to be exception, exceptional to be one to be accepted. And if you're not, yeah. then things go downhill. But I, and I agree with that hundred percent. And I think representation really, really matters. And we, the more representation we see everywhere, because Football is part of our culture. Sport is part of our cultural DNA, right? So it really, really matters. And so I do think this shift's taking place. You know, we're heading into Ramadan, right? And the number of football clubs lining up to hold iftars and to hold, you know, events for the Muslim community, I've never seen that before. Um, yeah. you know, I think Chelsea kick-started. Did, was it Chelsea that kick-started? Black yeah, Rovers, yeah and our Chelsea. Yeah. You know, and it's a time of massive global Islamophobia. And this rubbish that's been sprouted about refugees and migrants the word muslim is interchangeable between this as well so i think i think this is really incredible 
that this yeah. is happening. I just wanted to pick up the point around kind of the Mo Salah effect and 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 what you said, John, um, because I agree. I think it is about that excellence, and when that dips, obviously people then lose interest. Um, I do think though it's slightly different when it's your home team rather than the national team or the you know the team where you know the main players aren't necessarily from your home team. Because I do think you know at least in the Liverpool case, anyways, my mum likes to always tell me is that it's family. It doesn't matter whether you're winning or losing, and even when now they're not playing particularly great. Uh, you know, before the uh, uh, seven win uh, against Man United and post the seven win, um, it's still, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're hanging in there. It's all right. Uh, as long as you don't mention it to my mum, it's fine. Just say seven up and she'll be happy again. Uh, but, you know, this, this, I do think that there is this kind of, um, I don't know, this level of kind of this is our team and therefore, you know, the people that are in that team, we will support. But I mean, obviously, then that obviously that will shift at some point um, in the future, whether that change is, you know, long-term or whether it's just a quick fix at the moment where Liverpool is seeing this, you know, downward spiral of um, Islamophobic hate crime. Um, Yeah, I guess it's time will tell. Um, But I do think there's something slightly different between kind of that, my local team that I support wholeheartedly for life um, and, you know, the national team and how we support a national team when they're winning or losing. This is 80% Mental, and you're listening to an episode on sport and social justice. I'm here with, um, uh, who am I here with? I'm <laughs> here with Amna Abdulatif, Shaista Aziz, and John Fernandez. And we're talking about sport and social justice. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation so far. And, and again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So you can you can tweet us at EPM Podcast. You can leave a comment on the website, 80percentmental.com. You can find us on Instagram as well uh, at eighty percent mental. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, we, we've been talking about um, perhaps some of the impacts that sport can have. Um, there's this this trope that's often thrown out there that sport and politics don't mix. Yet we've seen that they are inherently linked, and they have been throughout history. And you you, you start to give a few examples of of how sport and politics. Uh, do mix and how sport can be this really powerful vehicle for for social change. Um, I, I, I want to ask though, um, when does it wh- when does it become performative? You know, Shyster, you mentioned taking the knee a little bit earlier on, and you know, w- with with taking the knee, some of the managers and some of the coaches and and even some of the players fairly early on started to talk about this idea that it was maybe losing its impact. It just became something that they were doing rather than something that that had had meaning. The meaning was getting lost. Um, so did taking the knee in football serve to keep the conversation going or did it just become a little bit diluted? Yeah, I think everything can become performative very quickly and we need to keep ourselves in check uh, when, when we are doing things as to what's motivating us to do it. Um, if we if we go back to that Euro, to that Euro competition when the England players were taking the knee, Raheem Sterling was one of the key drivers behind that. Tyrone Mings, you know these these two in particular these two members of the squad have lived they've lived lived real you know lives where they've experienced poverty where they've experienced deprivation. They are known for doing anti racism work. And the Home Secretary of the day, Priti Patel, who is a similar shade of brown to me, right, decided to call taking the knee gesture politics. 
um, and basically went for them. And then Tyrone Mings had to basically school her in anti-blackness. And, you know, that was in a very powerful, incredible moment. I don't think the England team's um, desire to take the knee is performative. I think it became it, it became the symbol that it, it, it triggered so many people. And it's good that they were triggered because there's so much discomfort about racism. You know, I always say this, that there's more outrage at being called a racist in the, in the United Kingdom than there is actually tackling racism. And by the England national team doing this, people, it was a reckoning. It was like a forced reckoning. And if we remember, the main thing that was being thrown at them is that they've got lots of money. So what's that got to do with anything? They've got lots of money, yet if they get in their nice fancy cars... Nothing's going to stop them from being stopped and searched. Nothing's going to stop them from being profiled. It's just a nonsense, right? I think it was a very defining moment. And I think a lot of younger people in particular understand what this means. So we've had um, the England captain with his rainbow armband. You know, that caused a little bit of dismay, but not on the same level as anti-racism. And I think the, the, the reason why I'm pointing this out is because even amongst those people, they're sports fans who believe in anti-oppression, right? They are reluctant to talk about racism. They're reluctant to dig in to this issue of racism. So at the Qatar World Cup, there was no mention of Islamophobia. Nothing. You know, the three hijabis tried to get some of the leading sports, um, you know, anti-racism organisations to engage with us on this issue. No one got back to us. Um, so it's very selective. So I don't think the performative nature of it is coming from the players. They were they were potentially going to lose money. Um, they were potentially going to use, uh, you know, uh, marketing, uh, you know, deals and all that type of thing. You know, they 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 were serious. They're serious about this. They believe in it. They, and and I, and I I think it's great that they did it. And they also got other European teams to to join them. But it has to go beyond that. Yeah. We've got to go beyond taking the knee. I think that I think that it did set a really important conversation in motion, and I think the booing of the taking of the knee, um, and the then the kind of the subsequent kind of commentary from politicians, um, politicised even more <laughs> the taking of the knee by the players. Um, but also, I think we had a lot of commentary after that final match when we launched the petition with people who said, "I get it now." You know, I didn't understand, and I thought it was just gesture politics, and I thought it didn't mean anything, and I just thought it was a waste of time taking that knee and what was the point and you know we're here to watch a game and then after what happened after that final game they were like I get it I get why those players thought it was important I get why it had to happen I get why we're having this conversation because this is the experience of black players in this country um, and this is the experience of racism uh, in this country towards people of colour um, and so you know I think it's it allowed a conversation that otherwise would not have happened to happen so yeah it's a gesture but actually the impact of what it's done is created a conversation that otherwise wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been done um and i think it is about platform you know when you have a big platform like the euros and you know you're the national team um and you are taking the knee and there is a sense of solidarity and your captain is there supporting you um mm. and and your manager is there supporting you i think it just changes i think the the way that then where how whether it feels superficial or whether it feels like it's actually meaningful, because I don't think they would have done it if it didn't feel like actually this, our experience is being 
racism has been so such a big part of our experience as football players as black people in this country that we need to do this on this you know wider international scale um and i applaud them for it i think you know we i mean part of that tweet that went viral initially with the three hijabis watching that ukraine match was essentially some of that you know what it means to watch the england team doing uh, taking the knee and 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 what it means for us to feel like actually we're connecting because the team is taking that issue seriously because that's our issue as well um so yeah i i do think it's um it's it was an important um gesture um and i think you know the accusations of performative uh, action is is by people who don't necessarily get how important these conversations are in this space i think as well it's <clears throat> it's really easy to forget what these athletes are putting at stake here right like Colin Kaepernick was ostracized from the NFL. The reality of uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos's gesture at the 68 Olympics was that um, they were taken out of their Olympic teams. Uh, they were struggled to get jobs. Uh, Tommy Smith still receives racist abuse. Uh, like how many years later, right? That's, that's the reality of what they're putting on the line here. I think what we got to kind of like think about as well is um, like the intention and impact behind all of this. Right. So not everything can be like a structural change in gesture. Right. But some of the kind of like uh, some of the symbolism actually paves the way to do that, to change the structures. So when you're kind of deciding if something is performative, you think about what is the intention behind it. Now, for a lot of organizations, they probably just want to maintain the status quo or be seen to be doing something. But for the athletes, there's an intention to what they're doing. They believe it can make change. They believe, you know, they're representing people, they're raising awareness. Uh, they're like, you know, shedding light on these different things. And then what is the actual impact? Now, the reality is, is like probably in terms of taking the knee over here, some of the impact probably has reduced right uh with time but the reality is is i mean a lot of the wave of the new kind of like social justice has come about because george floyd was murdered over the course of nine minutes and 29 seconds right and there was this massive kind of inflection where people were doing everything they could or thought they were doing everything they could and then things died off but it was football players that were taking the knee it was football players that were kind of keeping the conversation going and it's, that is not performative. That is keeping the conversation going. Yeah, the impact might have reduced a little bit, but it's still keeping it at the forefront of our minds. If you're if you're a racist and you're watching football, you have to watch them take the knee, like eat that, right? Like you, you yeah. you've got to see that every yeah. time. And right. I think it has it's shifted the conversation. I mean, like I said, when, you know, we were on still get lots of media requests to talk about the same issues around racism in football um, because the conversation has shifted so massively because of those actions. And I, and I think that is meaningful. And I, I totally agree. It's about keeping that conversation going. Um, you know, anti-racism work is, uh, is, you know, is, is ongoing. It's not something you kind of fix in a period of time and then that's it, it's done and you kind of go along your way. Um, that's, you know, it's going to take a hell of a long time for anything to really shift drastically. Um, and there's a lot of power in football, so much power as we've, as we've found out as we get one door shut, another door shut, another door shut, because, you know, the people in power don't see these you know predominantly white men in in power in in football particularly um who you know don't want these ha having to having to do extra work around these issues um so 
yeah, I do. I do think keeping that conversation alive and going, and and the role that those football players have mm. is is huge. Even if they're not able to necessarily talk about those issues as as bluntly as maybe they would like to, uh, sometimes yeah. because of the control of their clubs and and you know working um, uh, for the national team, etc. So yeah, I, I'm interested because you mentioned the clubs there and some of the organisations uh, that are perhaps involved in this. Um, uh, uh, there's a, there's absolutely a role for organizations here as well. Uh, and a lot of the pushback, sometimes that comes from the public, sometimes that comes from organizations themselves. So FIFA, for example, has numerous statements about discrimination. I'm going to read one of them out to you. Okay, uh, Article 4 of the FIFA statutes reads, discrimination... Hang on, where did you find this? Where did you find on, this? On does, FIFA... this? Does this have to be Googled like uh, no, and, is, and found is, in small print? No, this is absolutely this is in, uh. in, in a huge font on the FIFA website. Okay. Uh, fairly, fairly front and centre. Well, I have to do a little bit of digging. Um, article 4 of the FIFA statutes reads, discrimination, that's in block capitals as well, uh, of any kind against a country, private person, or group of people on account of race, ethnic, national, or social origin, gender, disability, religion, political opinion or wealth, birth or sexual orientation is strictly prohibited. So they've covered a lot of the bases there. Um, and on the website, it reads, discrimination in all its forms, uh, all its possible forms and expressions is one of the most common forms of human rights violations and abuse. Uh, online discriminatory hate speech towards players and coaches during international tournaments is all too common. Um no discrimination, this is one of their campaigns, is an awareness, education, and action campaign which inspires change and action on discrimination. Our goal is to rid the football world of discrimination. We all have a part to play. Now, at the World Cup in Qatar, several teams backed out of wearing the rainbow armbands, which you mentioned earlier, in support of LGBTQIA plus rights. And they did so because they were threatened with on-pitch sanctions, threatened with yellow cards. Now, there's a contradiction there, right? Well, it's a nonsense, isn't it? Basically, <laughs> yeah, what you said there is alphabet spaghetti, basically. <laughs> right? I, mean, I saw your and, face when I was reading that out. So. Yeah, I was like, and, and, you know, the thing, there's many things missing from that, you know, that elaborately worded statement. And one of them is accountability. And they put the statement out there as if it's got nothing to do with them, like they're voyeurs. Just it's like, hello, you govern the international game. What are you going to do about this? What is your role in this? Your role, you're not willing to play your role. Your role should be to actually hold football to account, hold yourselves to account. And what we found in the last two years, we've only been around for two years, right, as the three hijabis, is there is a fundamental lack of accountability in football. And it's really, really hard to actually even find out who runs football. Like, who, apart from the presidents and, you know, all of that, you know, FIFA and other institutions, it's really hard to actually knock on someone's door and find out how you can have a meeting with them, how you can hold them accountable. They are so far removed from the fans. And, I mean, let's be honest, right, you, you read that. We're all intelligent people here. If you ask me to tell you if I can remember any of it, I say no. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those things you could get chat GBT to write for you. Right? So. <laughs> we should try it after. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I could find, I'm sure if I went looking, I could find very similar statements on uh, most organizations' uh, websites. Yeah. Yet there is that action. sort of... 
yeah there, that there is that contradiction there because you know I, i'm sure i could find something uh on the fia website yet they are preventing lewis hamilton from protesting and speaking out and so i'm sure i could find something on all sorts of different websites so you know i i, I guess the question is if we are looking at younger athletes and saying it's important to speak out to use your voice to use your platform to talk about the, some of these some of these issues what do we need to do in order to support them to to be able to do that to use their voices or should we be should we be doing that should we be encouraging young athletes to speak out so i think it's a really tough one right so um <clears throat> Like the way a lot of these things exist is they exist from the top down. Uh, they're impacted in in the kind of broader structures, right? In the rules, in the policies, in the culture, and a lot of the expectation falls on athletes who effectively exist at the bottom of the structure, who have the lowest amounts of power. I think we need to first acknowledge that the burden can't always fall on them, right? Although they do excellent work and so on and so forth. I'm not trying to do them a disservice at all. But it's a lot to put on athletes, right? Especially when there's so much at stake. Um, so I think we kind of first have to acknowledge that. But I think you're a citizen before you're a footballer, you're a citizen before you're a rugby player, you're a, you're a citizen before, before anything else. And I think, I don't know, fundamentally, we have to kind of like exist in society wanting to be progressive, wanting to make things fairer. So I think we do have to equip them with the skills uh, in order to do that but at the same time make it optional because ultimately a lot of this work is done by a lot of this work is done by the marginalized right and the burden always falls on them so i'm all i'm all i'm all up for you know athletes doing this i'll support them in that but we need to get the privileged athletes involved as well um yeah. like <clears throat> we mentioned the uh the german football team right take your yellow card like, uh, sorry, who didn't wear the armbands uh, because they didn't want to get yellow cards. The bigger gesture is in your position of privilege to just to take your yellow card. Do it. Like it, it gets it gets me it gets me so angry. Like, uh, I'll stop. <laughs> no, you, you, you're right, though, isn't it? That that would have been the powerful statement, wouldn't it? You know. Yeah. What's the point in me having principles if they disappear at the threat of a yellow card? And then they're, the re- they're, they're not principles anymore. Yeah, and the reality, right, is that gesture meant that everyone was talking about why they didn't take the yellow card as opposed to the actual issue. Yeah. And so it wouldn't take a genius to work that out. Yeah, they never should be should have been put in that position in the first place. That's the that's the thing, right? So even before we got to that platform, that World Cup, you know, all this money being pumped into, you know, pro- into that particular World Cup or other World Cups which have had massive human rights issues as well. We've got to be fair on that. Um, so it's actually these politicians that use, um, try to use a lot of very high-profile sports people as scapegoats um, and try and manipulate them uh, for their own purposes. And increasingly, we're seeing this pushback, aren't we? Um, I think that, you know, it can't all be put on the burden of a football player or a cricket player or a rugby player, as you've said, John, to um, dismantle structural racism, to dismantle inequality, um, because it's not their job. Equally, as human beings, we all have a duty of care to each other and we should all be consciously aware of what's going on in the world and we should, I hope, want to do something about it. 
Yeah, let's let's be clear as well. FIFA doesn't care about equality, right? Like they don't. They don't. What those things are is they're just tokenistic statements because they need to be seen to be doing something. That's that's the reality, right? <clears throat> you know, where we talk about kind of like human rights issues. The previous World Cup was in Russia. The next one's in America. Like they don't they don't care. Like they don't, they don't truly care. And it's also easy to kind of like hide behind. Um, you kind of mentioned about, um, you know, who can we actually access? And it's because you've just got like faceless organizations, right? So it's easy to put this quote out and just go, right, I'm going to chuck that out there and run and just not do anything about it. it. It's so easy. And then the burden does fall on the players. Yeah. And I do, I do, you know, I mean, I mean, players, there is, I think when you have that stardom and when you are playing for a big team and you are seen to be a big player in, in you know, whatever uh, team league uh, you're playing at, um, there is, and I, and I think we all feel that to some degree. I mean, I think when the three hijabi stuff came out, we were like, flipping hell, this is a responsibility. Like, you know, you, you've been thrown into the deep end almost, um, you know, with all of this attention and people wanting to talk to you and stuff. But then at the same time, you feel, like, okay, I have to do something with this because this is an important platform that we've been given and not everyone has that platform. And then how do we use it, utilize it wisely? And, and, you know, and I see that for anyone who has any you know any sense of privilege or platform um to think about how they want to utilize that in the best way possible without it causing them harm because you know these are conversations we had at the start of kind of when all the media interest picked up uh, particularly is about how do we take care of ourselves how do we make sure that we don't become targets how do we make sure that you know as much as possible we are protected um and i think everyone has to make that but footballers have so much power like the influence that they have on young people in this country and worldwide is huge i mean you know the two uh, yesterday I was listening because all of the selena gomez gomez scandal with uh what do you call it hayley bieber stuff i don't know whether you're familiar but anyway my kids have been it's all over my tiktok but um, i can pretend so, that i don't know about what you're talking about but i actually do you yeah i'm sure because i i, don't, I wasn't even interested and it keeps coming up on my feeds um so anyway that they, they were saying that selena gomez is going to be the um uh, currently the most followed woman um worldwide um on instagram and, and various social media and the two most followed people are two footballers i think it's messi and ronaldo or something um you know so the huge they have such huge influence worldwide um and the bigger they get the more influence that they hold um and that comes with responsibility and i think you know that's important to note but it's whether you do that at the beginning of your career when you're still a young player and you're still developing you know your game or whether that comes later when you've actually got your platform and you're kind of a bit more secure and you're coming maybe to the end of your footballing career and you're building you know a, a different platform and a space for yourself i think that's you know something that everyone has to kind of figure out for themselves i think rashford kind of has figured out a space where it's been perceived as relatively positive, you know, that kind of food poverty, you know, who's going to argue against food poverty, you know, feeding kids in our schools. I mean, there's, yeah, well, there's You'd still be surprised. People, I mean... <laughs> yeah, there's, I, 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 you know, but generally speaking, yeah. the narrative hasn't been, you know, oh, let's, you know, oh, kind of, of pull him and drag him down. Um, it's been, oh, look, he's feeding our bloody children when the government should be doing that. It's, but so 
yeah, I guess you find your issue, you find it at the time that feels like it's the right time. But I do think there is a responsibility for those players. Um, but I, th- I do think we need to get to a point where the footballing authorities um, need to be held accountable and responsible, as has been previously said. The accountability has to be there in terms of, you know, the people who govern uh, football, because it can't just remain this faceless kind of um, uh, group of people um, who don't necessarily do anything to protect players or to protect, you know, around these issues in in general and actually do something meaningful with them. I'm just interested in the question, really, because the the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association in America, actively encourages student athletes to engage in social justice action. A recent survey studying over 2,000 athletes found that 80% of them felt that student athletes have an obligation to raise awareness about social justice issues. Uh, 83% were willing to speak up and do more about issues related to student activism. Now, as it happened, women and athletes of color were more likely to engage in activism than white male student athletes, which kind of supports what we all know already and what you've already discussed, that the burden often falls to those already marginalized. But the point is that the NCAA seems quite proactive in really encouraging athletes and providing direction for athletes on how to use their voices and their platforms. So I, I, I wonder whether whether you feel that that's maybe asking too much of young people or whether it's something that we should think about doing more of or maybe whether, like John said, we should be teaching young athletes, young people to be good citizens first and foremost And then, like Amna just said, that they find their space at a point in time, at a point in their careers that maybe comes a little bit more naturally to them. I don't even um, I I don't even know if there's a question in there, really. I'm just sort of throwing that out there to see what what people have to say. Yeah, we we, um, last year, the three hijabis worked on a campaign, uh, which we won, which we're really uh, proud of. Uh, So we worked with the Premier League um, and they agreed to do this. Right. So they agreed to roll out consent training across all Premier League football clubs, including uh, among staff. Now, since then, they've just shut us out. We can't get any more details from them. The point being, though, that when, you know, a lot of money is pumped into professional athletes, you know, they don't just suddenly arrive on the scene, superstars. They go through the academy system, you know, tennis players go through a similar system, cricket players, all of them, right? So if we are, if we want... um, our athletes of the future just to be better rounded citizens like all of us should be, then surely these educational opportunities should be put forward to them. Um, And I don't think the burden should, as I said, be all on their shoulders. And I would like to see more white players coming out and talking about racism. Um, talking about anti-racism, talking about migrant and refugees, just like Gary Lineker has. Um, I think that there is an sort of assumption that, you know, the black players will do it. Well, why? Why would they have to do it? Whereas everybody else? Um, and, you know, human rights is everyone's business. Um, po- we're, being alive is political. Struggling to survive is political. Football has always been political. I mean, just look at the amount of money that swirls around in it and who runs it, right? Um, and, you know, there's some of the greatest players in the world who sadly we've lost quite a few of them, Pele, uh, Maradona, you know, they were, they were always intensely political and what happened to them was intensely political as well. So I think we should just put this attempt to sort of just um, put sport athletes into boxes. We should just reject that fully. 
So we're, we're coming to the end of the of the podcast, um, and although I could keep this conversation going all afternoon, um, but we are coming to the end of the time that we've got. And you know, the, we've mentioned a few of them already, but there are so many athletes who've taken a stance on political and social justice issues, often to the detriment of their own careers. You know, you mentioned uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith and the, the civil rights movement. Uh, we've talked about Muhammad Ali, one of the most iconic sportsmen in history, refused to be inducted into the U.S. Army in 67 during Vietnam, was sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, he didn't serve them, but basically he was stripped of his passport and refused a boxing license. So he, gave, he was unable to fight for five years during what would have been the prime of his career. Um, of course, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, taking the knee in the Black Lives Matter movement. But before him, a basketball player named Mahmoud abdul Rauf, whose career was derailed after his silent, peaceful protest during the playing of the national anthem. And before him, Craig Hodges, who played alongside Michael Jordan in the early 90s. Hodges wanted to protest game one of the NBA finals between the Bulls and the Lakers because a few months earlier, Rodney King was brutally beaten by the Los Angeles police officers. But the first person to bring the Black Lives Matter movement to sport wasn't Colin Kaepernick. It was arguably a black woman named Ariana Smith. Now, as the national anthem played before a game against Fontbonne University in Missouri, and if you know anything about Missouri, you'll probably know that it's not the best place to protest the national anthem. But Ariana Smith made the hands up, don't shoot gesture, walked towards the American flag, and then lay face down on the floor for four and a half minutes to represent the four and a half hours that Michael Brown lay in the street after being fatally shot by the police. She was suspended from the team and the suspension was later lifted, but she eventually left the team. But what a what an incredibly brave and powerful thing to do. So really, m- m- my question is, with all of these examples, who has really inspired you? Who are the athletes whose stories and protests and involvement in social justice, speaking out on some of these important issues, who's really inspired you? Uh, Shaista, I'll start with you. Yeah, I was going to say we should also mention some women. So, um, you know, Simone Biles, um, who went on record about the sexual abuse she suffered, Naomi Osaka, who's talked about mental health issues. Serena Williams almost died giving birth. You know, one of the richest, most prominent athletes in the world, the, one of the most magnificent athletes in the world, a black woman from working class background. Despite all of that wealth, despite all that prestige, she was almost another statistic of a black woman dying, giving birth in one of the richest countries in the world. This is just horrifying. Amna, what about you? Who's, who's really inspired you? Whose stories have inspired you? <laughs> Do you know, and, and not to go back just to Liverpool all the time, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, my mum talks a lot about Sadio Mane, um, uh, and I know he doesn't play now for Liverpool, but um, you know I think he's one of those discreet players who just gets on with things, and the amount of money he's pumped into his um, you know his own town um, uh, is, is enormous. You know, building hospitals, building schools, impacting change during COVID, um, and. And, and I don't think many people know actually what he does, uh, but he's a very humble man. He's, you know, he just gets on with things. He puts his money where he feels is there needs to be change happening. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really credit that, you know, that, that kind of level of just, you know, just getting on with things, um, not making too much of it. Well, not that you have to, what do you call it, but, you know, that. And I think partly because Islam, 
you know, when you're giving your money away, you're giving your wealth away, you're supposed to do it quietly. You're not meant to kind of be showing off, oh, here, I spent a million pounds here, I spent, you know, this much here. Um, it's meant to be done quietly. And, and I, I really respect that. I respect, you know, the ability for somebody to utilize their wealth and their platform um, to really create change where they came from. Um, and I think that's something that he's been able to do uh, really well. I'll go for LeBron James. <clears throat> uh, I think for LeBron, you know, he's one of the most scrutinized athletes ever, probably one of the most hated athletes ever, probably, uh, and definitely one of the best athletes ever. And he's just continually just used his platform, um, like to speak out just at all levels. You know, he's doing things which are structural. He's built a school he's fully funded that school you know he's <clears throat> made like open protests on on social media and talks you know he's 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 done everything um and i think just for that level of scrutiny scrutiny and the level of hate that he gets to just continually just keep going um is just really kind of like empowering and you know uh yeah he'd he'd be that person for me I think we should just have all of them. We don't, shouldn't just have to pick one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was also going to say, do you know, I just, I really like, um, I, I love what Marcus Rashford is doing as well. You know, he's someone, um, you kind of mentioned Sadio Mane and Rashford just goes about his business like yeah. quietly as well. Uh, and I think as well, I really kind of empathise with the effect that doing this work has had on him and the racism has had on him. Like you can't say for certain, but you know, is his performance last year at least probably was affected by what had happened to him and the work he was doing. And, you know, he's his performance is better. He's still doing the work and, you know, in the face of a lot of a lot of hate. A lot of hate. Yeah. For feeding yeah. kids. <laughs> yeah, for feeding right. kids. Anyone knows this, but if anybody wants to go after Ream Sterling, they need to come through me. Um Massive fan of Raheem Sterling and, you know, his story and his, you know, love for his mum and his sister and the sacrifices they made. And look how he's been treated, consistently vilified, consistently portrayed as some sort of gangster. It's disgusting. Um, we don't see uh, white working class players treated in this way. Um, and neither should they be treated in this way. No one should be treated in this way. But he's maintained his dignity and he's been so powerful in fighting racism. And he's, he's gone about doing some of that work very quietly. Other aspects of it, he's been vocal, you know, and I, I think he's fantastic. Yeah. And, and a shout out to, uh, I, I'm right with you on the whole Raheem Sterling thing. And I think the way he's being vilified by the press is absolutely disgusting. Um, shout out as well to Tyron Mings, who I think you mentioned earlier, who beautifully took the government to task and educated them on anti-black racism. Um, there are so many examples of young athletes uh, who, are, who are doing it. They're, they're walking the walk. They're out there putting themselves out there, knowing that they're going to be potentially torn down. Um, Peter, I just want to mention Azim Rafiq because we haven't touched on yes, this yet. We're coming to the end of the podcast. I genuinely believe that if all of the events around the men's Euros hadn't taken place, perhaps cricket would not have had its reckoning. And it's all, all, all on the shoulders of this young working class cricketer who had to give up his hopes and his dreams um, because of and racism. And his home. And his home, and his yeah. home. You Having to leave the country entirely. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's left the country, right? How What a damning indictment of yeah. Britain in 2022 that the guy had to leave. And, you know, the fact that he 
ha- went to Westminster and st- sat there in that committee and spoke so powerfully about his experiences and the fact that he was almost driven to taking his life is devastating, beyond devastating. There's no words really for that. I, I you know, Amna and I both and Huda, we have so much respect for him and he's so brave and look at how they continue to vilify him. Hmm. It's disgusting. And these guys are all, all they're trying to do is go about their jobs. You know, they're going to work. These footballers are going to work. The cricketers are going to work and they're being racially abused. They've got, you know, the political establishment on their backs. I mean, it is quite a situation really, isn't it? It, it is. And, you know, we, we should be absolutely horrified by the treatment that they receive but equally inspired by the fact that they're still doing it, that putting themselves out there for issues that are important and they're bringing those issues to the public eye and they're keeping those important conversations going. Yeah, because we stand on the shoulders of giants. And that's Absolutely. It, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, I want to I want to thank you all for uh, taking the time out this afternoon to come and talk to me about this. Uh, it's been a really in- interesting and insightful episode. We've heard a lot of stories um, about how sport can be a really powerful vehicle for social change and how sport is inherently linked with politics. The idea that sport and politics don't mix is laughable, really. So, you know, when that old trope is fired out, well, you can fire back with, you know, countless, countless examples of how sport can be this really, really positive uh, driving force. Go on, John. You said sport and uh, sport and politics don't mix, and that's always thrown out. But if you're pro-social justice, then they definitely do mix, right? They definitely do mix. Even if you're not, they mix. You know, I'm th- it's 2023, right? Sport and politics don't mix. Well, how come girls are being allowed to play football in school for the first time? It's 2023, yeah. and that's only now being written... <laughs> Yeah, and how come the French government is trying to ban Muslim women from playing football if they wear hijab? Yeah, so you know. it, exactly. So it's not necessarily that sport should stay out of politics. It's the politics inherently has an impact on sport. So if you're involved in sport, yep. you have no choice yeah. but to be involved in politics. Yeah, But also every, everything is you know, everything can be framed in a political context. I mean, our, li- our lives are political, you know, our choices, the, you know, how we live our lives, um, where we live, <laughs> you know, it's all based on political uh, decision-making. I, I think, you know, this whole idea that politics only fits in certain spaces or politics should just stay with the politicians, that's a load of garbage. It's just about power and control and, you know, maintaining a certain narrative that a certain elite, uh, you know, manage mm. and anyone else doesn't really know enough about politics to talk about it yeah. appropriately, even though our lives are what yeah. is being framed by the politicians so i think yeah it's uh it's a yeah just a, a cop out i think to absolutely it's, it's meant to silence yeah. it's meant to silence look i, I want to just thank you all again really for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon um we should also give a shout out to huda the third hijabi who couldn't make it this afternoon but uh is is, is part of the team no less um so to uh, amna abdulatif thank you so much for for joining us on the on the 80 percent mental podcast thank you so much for having me a really interesting conversation and same to you shaista aziz thank you so much thank you and solidarity to everyone and john fernandez thank you for joining us this afternoon yeah thank you for having me really enjoyed this conversation well, what I'll do is I'll make sure that we put all of your social media links into the episode description. So if, one of, if people want to find out more about you or people want to reach out to you, they can do that through uh, 
through there. So all your Twitter links and websites and so on and so forth. Um, so once again, thank you so much. Well, I hope that you out there in podcast listener land have really enjoyed listening to this episode and have enjoyed this this conversation on sport and social justice. I'd love to know what you think as well. What do you think about some of the things that we've talked about today? Taking the knee, rainbow armbands. Can sport really make a difference? Who are the athletes that have really inspired you? You can listen and subscribe to all of our episodes at 80percentmental.com where you can also leave a comment or you can tweet us at EPM Podcast or find us on Instagram at 80percentmental. So let us know what you think about what you've heard today and I'll see you next time. Well, I won't see you because it's a, it's a podcast. Thank you.